Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday. I have completely forgotten the date. Um, October 27th. October 27th. Hot start there, huh? Yeah, that's a great start to the episode. But we have a big interview with, I mean, actually big, eight people. Yeah. So the whole Seven Investing team, which this is the perfect time to announce that we are now partnering with Seven Investing. Um, and so what's the whole deal? Do you want to explain yeah, it? Yeah, so um, I guess we'll do a big explainer on this first one, but we are going to be partnering for their subscription service. So if you right. are thinking of subscribing to 7investing, which we would highly recommend, it typically costs $17 a month, but you can get with our promo code CCM a $10 off your first month. So if you go to their website, uh, and you go to the subscribe page, there will say a question, do you have a coupon? And mm-hmm. if you type in CCM, uh, yeah. you'll get that uh, $10 off the first month, and that helps us you know, with our show, and then also helps Seven Investing because you're subscribing. So it's right. a win-win situation. And it helps the investor, you, because yeah. <laughs> they actually have really good advice. I, I loved some of the recs this month, and we're not allowed to say any of them, but who – had your favorite recommendation. <laughs> I, I can't, uh, I can't, I don't know. I can't say I specifically. Liked, I liked Steve's. Steve's, yeah, Steve's is good. Steve was good. They're anyway, all good though. This is our hook to get you to go <laughs> sign up, I guess, because it actually, it's super useful. And it's also, I mean, it's seven bucks essentially using our code. So yep. there's no reason not to do it. Uh, but before we get to our interview with all six members of Seven Investing, we have our stories for the week. What are you talking about? Uh, I am talking about Goldman Sachs. Uh, and they are, they're, I don't know, they're in trouble again. They're always paying fines. So they officially had to pay fines and take back some compensation for people that were in management during the one MDB scandal. And I'll explain all that is further during the news story. Okay. And then I'll be talking about Duncan Brands potentially going private. So that's a, a pretty big news story, apparently. Yeah, biggest um, of the week, probably. And then we have current state of FinTwit, some interesting stuff there. And then, as always, we have hot water, fuck, Mary kill, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. You want me to kick things off? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Duncan Brands is potentially going private. This week, news came out that Duncan Brands, the parent company of Duncan Donuts and Baskin Robbins chains, is in talks to sell itself to a private equity-backed firm at an implied valuation of roughly $9 billion. Um, the private equity-backed company is Inspire Brands. Inspire Brands owns Arby's, Buffalo Wild Wings, Sonic, Jimmy John's, and more. Um Seems like two out of four are really good brands there. Jimmy Johnson. Those are all they're all recognizable brands. They're all recognizable, but two out of four seem like one of the two of them, like Jimmy Johnson, Buffalo Wild Wings. People really like. Yeah, I mean, people like Sonic. They like Arby's, just not us. I guess. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more personally. um, Estimates say that they would be taken private at a per share price of one hundred six dollars and fifty cents. That's a twenty percent premium to what shares were trading at before the announcement. That's stupid. Um, yeah, this is one of those times where insider information would have been great, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there were some people that were trading it. We're so um, close to getting that. So. Yeah, yeah, we're right there. Uh, but 
last year Duncan reported 1.4 billion in revenue with more than 240 million in profits. Does that seem like a bit of a premium to you at yeah. a nine billion dollar valuation? Yeah, if their profits were 240 million for sure, uh, they're not the number one brand in this space. They're not the I don't know. They compete with Starbucks a lot, yeah. and it's not a fast growing market with high margins. So I mean, who knows though? But PE, you know, private equity, they get to do whatever they want with it. And it seems like a typical if you're gonna buy someone out like that, you really have to pay up for it, especially when the business itself isn't distressed. And yeah. I don't think they are, uh, you know, right now at all. Duncan has been private before, but the private equity firms took them public in 2011. I think they were owned by like three different ones. Um, but the Duncan actually took the donuts out of their name to more directly compete with Starbucks, which okay, I'm not. I'm like, all right, donuts is gone now. Your coffee's better than Starbucks. I don't get that. But um, yeah, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think and Dunkin' Donuts is more of an East Coast restaurant. Um, do you think they'd be able to compete on the West Coast with Starbucks? Uh, it's tough to say, but I would guess no. Uh, and it's probably why they're going to get hurt by not being able to grow very much. I mean, they have the lockdown market with the Northeast, and everyone loves them there. But uh, they're not coming to the West Coast and doing what Starbucks has. I mean, you said here they don't have any stores in Washington at all, and only a small number on the West Coast. That's probably for a good reason. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just tough. It's just tough. Starbucks has a great brand. People love them out on the West Coast and even, you know, the kind of Rocky Mountain area as well. So, Have you ever had Dunkin' Donuts? Yeah, I've been to Dunkin' Donuts at an airport, I think. It's fine. It's nothing to write home about, though, which is why – I mean, that's just a personal opinion, but with these restaurant-type companies, even like coffee chains, it's tough to see what kind of value you're going to get when buying them out for more than a 20 times earnings multiple. I mean, if you're thinking, like comparing it to a software company or a dominant player with a huge moat uh, that has a ton of recurring revenue, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, 20 times earnings seems solid, but for Duncan... I mean, that's expensive. I mean, they must have a plan with what they're doing. Also, I'm sure they've done this before. They've acquired Jimmy John's, Buffalo Wild Wings, Arby's. Like, they must have a sort of plan intact. Um, But But their track record's solid, so. I just thought it was interesting. It doesn't really affect – I mean, I wasn't planning on investing in Duncan (laughs) Brands. Anyway, yeah, that was one of our first fundamental analysis episodes, I think. We actually deleted it because it was so old. (laughs) And I remember going over them and thinking back, we didn't really know anything about the business, but it's still not, I mean, it's an interesting story. It'll be cool to see what happens when they're private, but it's not, it's not the type of business we typically like to invest in at all. I feel like us saying that we don't think Duncan would like succeed on the West coast is going to be a huge trigger warning for East (laughs) East coasters. Yeah. I mean, I'll say, um, I don't think Starbucks would succeed as well on the East Coast. I know they have more pen- they have more penetration than Dunkin'. No, well, East Coast is different than Northeast. So Northeast is all Dunkin'. I mean, Starbucks does try to move over there, and they have shown some popularity, but people love Dunkin' in uh, it's you true. Know, the New England area. It's very true. All right, what's your story? Okay, Goldman Sachs, uh, they had a 1MDB fine. Some of you might know what that is. Uh, it is... billion that were looted from the Malaysian Investment Fund with the help of some Goldman employees. So there, back in the day, I think it was 2012, 2013, uh, there was the Malaysian Investment Fund, and there was this crazy man. uh, He is, I think, hiding out in China now, and I'm forgetting his name, but it's not important to this article. 
Um, you know, he bought a $250 million yacht with the funds that uh, Malaysia had, and he financed the Wolf of Wall Street, which is quite ironic um, that the Wolf of Wall Street was financed with, you know, dirty money, fraudulent money. But currently, uh, Goldman Sachs has been in a lot of trouble, and they're actually clawing back $174 million in compensation that former uh, CEO David Solomon, or sorry, current CEO David Solomon and ex-CEO Lloyd Blankfein, 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 excuse me, thank you, uh, over the relationship with that, uh, you know, $600 million in fees were paid to Goldman during that time, and it was proven that they knew it was an illegal scheme and that the bond traders were acting nefariously, just trying to get the fund uh, money over to Goldman, which... It sucks, uh, but that's just kind of how the world works there. It's not a huge story, and it's just interesting that, I don't know, Goldman Sachs can do all that and get away with it. No, it's just like, name a time that you've heard about an investment bank for a good reason. Eh, yeah, I mean, sometimes. I think you don't hear about them because people... That's their job. That's their job, yeah. Um, but, do you think the fine was big enough? I mean, should management, I guess they have new management now, but should management have been totally wiped out from this deal because this is a terrible look for them, and it shows that there's probably still these nefarious actors at the company. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, there's it's never, it's never going to stop. I'm sure they're going to constantly do things that are not in the best interest of most people, but they make a lot of money doing it, and then yeah. they get fined. Yeah, it seems like they're above the law almost where it was almost – so they got $600 million in fees, and I don't know if they have to pay all of that back. But just having these clawback compensation things of $174 million, it's really not – it's like, all right, well, we, we did this illegal thing. We have to pay a little bit on the back end. But in reality, we got a lot of cash up front for doing this stuff. Why wouldn't we do it again? Yeah, it just – I don't know. I've never been a fan of most investment banks. I don't understand especially generally the value prop. Especially Goldman Sachs. Like, cool, you can take a company public and just charge them a bunch of fees. What else? Yeah. What is the point? It seems like it's slowly dying. Um, they still have a lot of power out there, but it seems like it's slowly dying, yeah. Yeah. And well, they can do a lot of derivatives. They, do comp they can pay PhDs uh, to do complex derivatives. That's uh, yeah, that's probably the best thing that comes out of an investment bank is that one smart investment banker starts a fund with some of their assets yeah. and it ends up being decent. And it feels like in, in aggregate, it's just going to have market level returns, right? Yeah. Because you have so many investors there. What What's going to – there's no differentiated factor. It's – you. Sh I mean I've always been at odds with the fact that they have analysts in basically the same company as – as uh, funds that own the stock. Yeah. Like you'll never, like if you're an analyst for that company, you're not going to write something like if JP Morgan or some investment bank is taking a company public, are you going to write a bad piece? Even if oh, it's a bad and company? The, and they own, no. and there's, st there's studies out there that, well, it's not studies. It's just kind of people looking at history that the only, uh, that they ride the market wave. So like in 1999 or 2000, it would have probably been 1999. There was zero sell recommendations from these analysts. Which yeah. is just like you're not doing real analysis, and the only way you're putting it out there is so the price either, you know. Well, they'll lose their job if they say something that's against their firm's belief. It's just, it's just, uh, or best th interest. they're unnecessary jobs in the first place. I know I might get some flack for that, but they just, they're not helpful. I don't know. Okay, current state of FinTwit. Um, how much, did, I mean, I only have one note. It was like a bad week for Tesla. Oh, which, you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I mean, we, earnings were better than people thought. We but... haven't talked about Tesla in a while, but they had to recall, I believe it was more than 48,000 cars from yep. China due to suspension failures. And then there's also been all these videos of their beta full self-driving thing. Yeah, it's criminal. Which, like, I mean, it isn't working very well, which is whatever. I mean, it's probably doing more than the videos are highlighting. Like, the video is obviously highlighting their flaws. Yeah. But if there are flaws, none of the other cars signed up to be on the road next to a Tesla <laughs> know, with a beta full self-driving software. I know. You're, uh, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I, I don't. Um, I don't enjoy it. I think it's highly dangerous. Uh, and it's I not hope gonna... cars are autonomous in the future, but this yeah. isn't the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish it was true that they could do this right now, that they could have full self-driving, but beta testing this stuff on the roads with no regulation in no closed environments with drivers that aren't like licensed to do this specific thing. I heard that Cruz or Waymo, it could have been one of those, has uh, a driver, obviously they have a license beforehand, train for a month to make sure they can be behind the vehicle because it's an entirely different experience where you have to be looking for certain things. And those are in closed systems. It's it's ridiculous. But apparently the stock price is going up, so it's all fine. Um, which, <laughs> as a, a long-time listeners, um, yeah, they know our stance on that. They know our stance. Yeah, for any new listeners, sorry, we're not the biggest fans, but... Um, yeah, we'll break uh, we'll break your bubble there. Um, but all right, what do don't you hate us for it. Okay, this was a interesting thing from Chris Bloomstrand at Semper Augustus had a nice thought experiment. Uh, so here's the scenario: one billion dollars in net income is reported. You got that? Mm-hmm. Cash flow statement shows one billion dollars in non-cash stock-based compensation, which translates to two billion dollars in operating cash flow. But they spent $2 billion on cash to repurchase shares and $1 billion in dividends. If the share count and stock price are unchanged, how much does the shareholder make? Isn't it like $1 billion? Yeah. They have an extra I mean, $1 billion a, in their pocket. And it's a little hard to follow, but yeah. yeah. Also, it's – I mean – What was the point of the tweet, though? It's basically to show that people use stock – they, like, expense stock-based compensation to – so it's it's kind of like okay people do stock based compensation and they buy back stock the stock price goes nowhere you know what i mean and right. you pay out 1 billion dollars in dividends that's your only form even if you're you're cash flow positive it's st- or sorry even if that's a non cash expense it's still like i don't know one sense. of the examples where it still should be kind of treated as an expense especially if you're treating share repurchases as the opposite of that if the stock price is the same Huh. Okay. I don't know. It's just no. That's a fascinating experiment. Uh, experiment. And but I the think thing a is, lot of people got it wrong in the mentions. Yeah, and the thing is, there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. Right. Where if you think the company's overvalued, undervalued, it's not like there's one hard rule here, which makes it so interesting on um, how people like to value stock-based compensation on their own um, cash flow statements that they make for themselves or their own analysis that people are doing on a company. Okay, did you have anything else? Uh, yeah, I have two others. Hopefully they are shorter. Sorry, let me load them up here. Okay, there's a guy here. His name is, his last name is Pabrai. I think he's a very famous value investor. He said, quote, I do not run DCFs or use Excel to figure out intrinsic value. It violates the fifth commandment. Oh, I thought he was going to say amendment. Commandment, that's strong. Okay. If you can't do the math in your head and with the fingers on one hand, it should be a pass. Whether the 10-year T-bill currently yields 0 or 5% makes very little difference in my thinking on the investments I'm making. 
What are your thoughts? Kind of up our alley a little bit, although we use Excel sometimes. But Yeah, I mean, the, I have found that, and I'm like not incredible at math, but I have found the, the deeper you dive into a company, the easier the math gets. Like yeah. it's very simple mathematics. Um, and as far as the interest rates go, I mean, they do matter in certain instances if the company is known to take on a lot of debt. Yeah, um, I know. Especially to finance growth. I don't agree with the last part, but then someone quote tweeted and said, wonder why it took him 15 years to hit his high watermark, <laughs> which was a good little burn. Uh, but I think he's still a pretty good investor. Uh, all right, last one here. Let me lo- uh, load it up. Okay. This is interesting. So this is from Citron Research. Uh, yep. This is from Power Lunch. They call it the most compelling IPO of the year, and it's not a tech company. Hear from the CEO of Compass Pathways on their groundbreaking research to win approval for the use of magic mushrooms. Uh, what? Yeah. Public company. You can just invest in magic mushrooms as a public company now. Like shrooms? Like the yeah, yeah. Like the drug? Yeah, well, it's a mushroom, like yeah. Like psychedelic mushrooms and that. Yeah. I, <laughs> they're going public? They're going public, yeah. How is that the most, I mean, I it's can't the imagine most compelling that's a huge business. Yeah, I, I, I assume it's a SPAC with no revenue, as we'd probably expect in the fall of 2020, but. Okay. That's right. funny, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have thought there's like a full business behind that. Apparently there is. Apparently there's going to be. It's the most compelling one. Airbnb, Snowflake. Uh, what are the other ones? Any Lemonade. Good tech company. Lemonade. Procore, Those aren't compelling. Potentially. No, no. Well, Procore, that's all you. You love Procore. You but, love Procore. But, but not as much as Magic Mushrooms. Not as much as, uh, what is it called, Compass or something. Yeah. They don't have to say Magic Mushrooms in their name. Okay. Well, we have our interview next with all six members of Seven Investing. Um, any highlights for you? Uh, I mean, I covered healthcare, and that was with Simon, Max, and Austin. We talked a little about that. We uh, Max is kind of an expert in biotech stuff, and we talk about the differences of what biotech is, kind of the basics. We'll have to get Max back on to do like a 40-minute interview specifically on all the stuff he covers. But, yeah, I mean, that's fascinating because that's something that seems like a complete back black box to me but all those guys are good all the analysts there are fantastic and there's a reason we uh you know have that partnership with them so yeah hope that goes well going forward and the whole theme of the discussion was around disrupting legacy systems and so or some older systems and the two that we highlighted were healthcare and i talked about real estate yeah with matt steve and dan right Am I getting yeah that? your focus mainly on the i buying upstarts that have a lot of capital flowing in yeah. right now a lot about redfin zillow all that stuff so here here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by the entire 7investing team. So it's, uh, what, an eight-member show? Eight-member interview? Eight total. Okay. Um, And the only person we haven't had on the show before is Max Chatsko. Am I saying that right? Yep. 
Okay, um, so Max, we're gonna ask you a few questions before we get to the bulk of the interview. Um, so how did you get your start in investing and why or how did you end up joining 7investing? Well, I started investing back in college, which was actually during the Great Recession. Um, so I was like 18 or 19, I was buying my first stocks. Uh, I actually bought Tesla at the IPO and then I sold it a few months later, like a knucklehead. Oh. But, uh, you know, it was good. You, you, you're naive when you're younger and you just try to figure it all out. But uh, yeah, so that's how that went, I guess. Um, how to join 7investing, Simon wouldn't stop calling me, man. I tried to change my phone number, tried blocking him. He's worse than those people trying to find you for your car warranty, you know? Um, you now, uh, Simon and I and all of us were probably talking about 7investing before it was uh, called 7investing. So uh, I joined, I uh, agreed to join earlier this year. Just had to, you know, the timing had to be right, but uh, it was an easy decision because, I mean, this team here, everybody has great experience, great backgrounds, everybody covers a different part of the market. So uh, it's pretty easy to make the jump. Yeah, and it sounds like you have sort of a special niche, if you will, in the biotech, biopharma sort of industry. What led you to that? And do you, do you also see that as your specific niche? Yeah, so here at 7investing, I'll be covering renewable energy, and uh, I call it living technology. So it's mostly biotech, but, uh, you know, biotech covers a couple different sectors, biopharmaceuticals, which is more healthcare-based, uh, industrial biotech, so producing chemicals with microbes, uh, and then a couple other areas that aren't as big right now, but, you know, agricultural biotech, biotech animals, uh, so there's major subsectors there. Uh, what led me to that? Um, I mean, that's just my technical background. So I have a couple of different engineering degrees in uh, bioprocess engineering. So that's scaling up fermentation systems, or as I call it, we just get to get, get to make beer and wine and things like that. Uh, but also vaccines. So anything you can make with a living organism uh, in a fermentation tank or cell culture. Uh, and then I have a, a degree in material science and engineering. So I focused again on, on biomaterials and tissue engineering. But uh, I also did some a lot of work in electrochemistry, so uh, energy storage, batteries, things like that. Wow, that's a uh, that's a pretty <laughs> impressive background for an investor, for sure. Um, I guess we'll have to go deeper for maybe an individual interview one time, but we're going to bring on the first uh, three panels here. Uh, it's with Simon, Austin, and Max. You guys probably know Simon and Austin from any previous interviews or from 7investing, and we're going to be talking about healthcare. And the first question I have directed at Simon, um, but anyone can chime in if they want. So the story for 2020 is specifically healthcare has been telemedicine. And we saw that big Teladoc and Livongo merger this summer. Um, looking forward, how are you guys thinking about the industry? And are there any surprises from, uh, you know, what you were thinking about going into COVID and then where we're at now, like six or eight months in? Yeah, I'll go first with that one, uh, Brett. And, and first of all, you know, we're really excited to have Max on the team. I think he joined when it was one investing. And, you know, being a fermentation engineer, we kind of thought that he'd help us brew our own beer. So it was a natural fit for the team. Uh, to Lavongo and, and Teladoc, you know, this is one that I've kind of gone back and forth with, uh, because there, there definitely is an opportunity for telemedicine. Uh, Medicare is 55 years old. In the United States now, it's approaching senior citizen status as a program, and we spend three trillion dollars a year on that. So I think that there's finally the realization that the prices of things can't just keep going up in healthcare. We need to find ways to get the the costs of healthcare down. 
And going remote, obviously, is one opportunity to do that. Uh, doctors are signing on board, and Teladoc has risen to become one of the platforms to really support telemedicine. The thing that kind of caught me off guard with this acquisition of Lavongo was that Lavongo had been a publicly traded company for less than one year when they actually announced the acquisition. And here you've got one stock that is more than a four-bagger in less than a year, uh, buying an, another stock that's also a four-bagger in, in one year. So, I mean, this is happening incredibly quickly. I think that to some extent, the impetus for the acquisition was that Teladoc didn't want to compete with Lavongo building out a more complete platform. And Lavongo didn't want to compete with Teladoc getting more better relationships with the, with the patients at the, at the end of the day. And so it, it's a natural marriage. The market is huge, $3 trillion a year. And it's an opportunity to save costs. I, I think that going forward, there's plenty of opportunity for both of these companies with the same name. Yeah. And Simon, I'll jump in real quick too. Um, the, Brett, Ryan, as you talked about the, there's a lot of competition in this industry and we've seen it just explode and the need for it explode, right? So for a long time, it was like, is telehealth and, and virtual medicine even going to be a thing? They've really turned that corner now and there's more competition than ever. And these two companies combining, you know, specifically these two companies combining, they've talked about it in some of their merger talk. There's a lot of cross-selling that they can do into each other's member base because I think there's only about a 25% crossover. I'm not looking at it. It's not in front of me of, of members. And so um, there's a lot of cross selling that they can do into like selling uh, Teladoc services to Lavongo members and then um, selling the Lavongo devices into the Teladoc um, member base. And these two combining really gives them an offering with the network and the providers and the insurance companies and all of the patients that Teladoc has in their global network and then the devices and the glucose monitoring and everything, the AI and ML delivered coaching that Lavongo offers that really no other company can compete with. And so um, I'm extremely excited. You know, there was questions about valuation, whatever, but over the next five, 10 years, uh, very excited about these two companies. Yeah. Anyone else have any thoughts on that before we go on to the next question? Okay. All right. This next one, uh, this might be specifically for Max because uh, it's about biotech, but I kind of want to, I mean, we here, we don't know anything about that industry and we didn't even know that there's two subsections that you were explaining about. Uh, what's the best way for someone to learn about biotech investing? And do you think anyone that, you know, really doesn't have the background or, or the degrees, can they be successful doing it? And if so, how, how should they go about learning it? Yeah. So I guess the way I look at it, I mean, and this is probably true for most investing, you know, there's basically like two approaches, right? You can do the top down approach or the bottom up approach. So a top down approach in biotech might be, oh man, I keep hearing about this thing called CRISPR gene editing, you know, and you take like a 30,000 foot view, you say, oh, well, this is going to be great. One day this will be big. So I'm just going to buy all the CRISPR gene editing companies. So that's one approach. And then the bottom up approach is, you know, trying to really take maybe more, you don't necessarily have to have more of a technical background, but at least try to understand some of the fundamental concepts. So really dig in, understand opportunities or industries or technology platforms, and then pick their spots. So maybe you don't buy all the CRISPR companies, you just focus on one. Um, so that's kind of where my approach is bottom up. It's kind of hard, you know, right? It's, it's seen as this thing that's very, you know, technical. And um, I don't know, I, I hope I do a good job explaining it in my reports and things and my writing, but uh uh, yeah, it's hard to like find good sources of information. So I guess I would just encourage people to 
find sources or individuals you can trust people who seem to be objective and, and, you know, know what they're talking about. So like people who just say, Oh, CRISPR is going to change the world. And that's in like all of their writing. Well, I mean, that's not adding a whole lot of value to the conversation. So uh, maybe try to find like more trade journals or things like that to uh, kind of balance yourself out. Right. Cause it feels like, I mean, someone from our point of view, um, it feels like a black box kind of looking into it. So it, we kind of discredit it yeah, entirely. It feels like biotech is probably one of the first things to go in the too hard pile. Like it's really easy <laughs> to just anytime it's anything related to biotech, just throw it aside. But if you have, I mean, if everyone's putting in their too hard pile, that means there's you know more of an advantage for someone that actually understands the industry. Um, anyone else have any points on that? Simon, you want to? I think that's a huge reason to invest, to invest in biotech is exactly what you just said, that you've got a huge portion of the investing population that's just not going to go there. And uh, that means that there is not a saturated, I mean, this is not a super efficient area of the market. You've got opportunity that's not being factored into the stock prices because people don't know how to figure it out. That's one of the biggest reasons that I, I'm really excited to see the recommendations that Max makes for seven investing. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Anyone else before we move on to the next one? All right. Uh, this one will start with Austin. Uh, so, I mean, another trend, I guess, sort of in the healthcare space, but also in fitness is connected fitness. And that's very trendy right now. We, um, you know, it's in the early stages of being a giant industry. Uh, the question I have, you know, is this the next like big industry? I guess that's kind of a vague word, but is it going to replace gyms having all this connected at home stuff or is it a little overhyped? And then a second question, um, do you think anyone can compete with the Apple watch or are they going to have the dominant, you know, position um, in that, like with healthcare connectivity and all that stuff, um, are they going to control that market? Yeah. So, you know, people have always been looking for creative ways to, improve their fitness or whatever. I remember, uh, when I was a kid and everyone else on the seven investing team was already grown up. Uh, I remember seeing infomercials of like ab things that you could wear on your, on your abs and they, uh, make the muscles contract on your abs and that gives you a six pack. Right. Um, so everybody's been looking for the magic pill for fitness, health and fitness. Right. But, um, mm -hmm. I think we're actually entering an age where technology, data, internet connectivity is good enough now to really start to bring these um, different devices and different options into people's homes and give them um, great training, great coaching, great tracking and data, and then the ability to do it, uh, whether you're locked in your house for coronavirus or a busy work schedule or just whatever, you can do it on your schedule, not have to go to the gym at a certain time. So I definitely think the industry is, is here to stay. Um, there's going to be winners and losers in the industry for sure. And Apple coming out and announcing um, their Apple Fitness Plus or whatever, you know, as part of this subscription package and then what they're doing with the watch, I think that just validates the industry. So I think there's definitely some companies out there that um, can compete with with Apple or I wouldn't even call it competing with Apple because there's going to be room for for multiple winners for sure because it's a, you know, a uh, multi-trillion dollar industry, um, especially globally. And so I don't think the question is who's going to compete with Apple. I just think it's who has products and services that really hit home with consumers 
the trends are going in the right direction. They continue to grow and they have an offering that differentiates them from others. Um, so those are the types of companies that, that I look for. And, and even everything like, um, you know, an example, personally, I just bought GoodRx, um, which isn't a, a fitness company, but it, in same thing with, with Teladoc and Labongo, like we were just talking about, people are just getting more and more health conscious. And so, um, virtual health, telehealth, connected fitness is definitely an area that, that I'm interested in. And, and there's a lot of winners there for sure. Okay. Uh, Max or Simon, do you have anything on this topic or do you want me to move on? Okay. Uh, this one's for everyone. I guess we'll choose whoever wants to go first can go first. Uh, this is a broad question. What trend or subsection of healthcare are you guys most excited about? Um, you know, maybe for the next few years or even the next decade. Well, I'll, go, I'll go first. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm interested in if I had to like pick one, I mean, it's hard for me, I guess, but um, I would go with cell therapy. So uh, the great things um, potential on paper anyway, for cell therapy is, um, you know, we can kind of armor a cell to be a therapeutic agent, right? So we can put these different things on the surfaces of the cell and then put it into a patient's body and it will do different things in different environments. So whether it's within the tumor microenvironment or the tumor uh, secretes something to try to defend itself, well, maybe the cell therapy does something different or you know, it can help to trigger uh, immune responses to help a patient's immune, just immunity already overcome. Uh, tumors or, or inflammatory diseases. So it's kind of like this, you know, Swiss army knife therapeutic agent. Um, and it's really the first time we've been able to do that. Now that adds a lot of factors of complexity and, and variables. So manufacturing them, standardizing dosing, I mean, the FDA has already come down recently on, on some of these. So, um, but yeah, cell therapy is a, a big one for this decade, I would say. All right. Well, jump in. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Simon, do you want to go next? Yeah, I, I was going to say my, my trend that I'm watching is genomics in oncology. So right now, uh, we're really kind of at a quantum leap in healthcare where you're not just having doctors subjectively uh, determine what cancerous tumors are and, and characterize them. They're actually able to use genomic sequencing to, to figure out what the tumor is in, in various different ways. And so where are we going with this? Well, right now, uh, doctors kind of have to take tissue from a cancerous tumor to characterize it. After you use a scalpel and get in to see a patient, it's really harsh on the patients. It's really expensive and time consuming and everything else. Uh, there is a field right now that is finding ways to detect cancer earlier in its stages, where it's no longer a stage three, stage four cancer you have to take a, a biopsy from. You can actually detect it in the bloodstream, look for biomarkers, all sorts of other really cool things, and sequence it. And so what does that mean? Well, if you can start uh, treating patients at the early stages of cancer, that's a really, really high uh, or much of an improvement for the survival rates for the patients. That's a win for them. It's a win for the doctors because they've detected it and they have better patient outcomes. And it's also a lot less expensive than having to go through chemotherapy and a lot of that patient um, stuff that they're going through right now for, for treating cancer. So that's something I'm really excited about. I think it's a lot of value for a lot of people there. Yeah, I mean- I just have a real quick comment. Uh, mental health is an area too, uh, that I think, especially with COVID is, is going to, uh, we're going to see a lot of, of growth. There's a lot of like private companies doing mental health. I'm excited to see, um, public companies with, with some mental health offerings. All right. Well, that sounds, those are some good picks. Um, those are interesting topics. Uh, we have one last question here. It's, I guess it's a fun one to wrap things up for this section. Um, it's with, for Max and I guess Simon's included here too. What is the gene sequencing bet you guys have? And I mean, what are the two sides of that? All right. So in June, 2018, Simon and I 
made a bet about the future of DNA sequencing, so reading DNA. The bet was, I bet that in 10 years, so in June 2028, Illumina would be worth $40 billion or less, which was equal to its uh, market valuation at the time we made the bet, and that nanopore sequencing would have at least 50% market share of the overall sequencing market. And it had 0% in June 2018. And if I win, I think it's double or nothing, Simon. It is, yep. He has to come find me somewhere in the world and hand deliver me $200. So I'll be in the Amazon rainforest if it's still there in June 2028. And uh, he'll bring a mosquito net and come find me. With $200 in hand, even. <laughs> that, yeah. that is just such a typical investor bet too like that's so nerdy you too <laughs> like that you bet like such specific terms like that yeah. no one would understand otherwise yeah it's like a three-term derivatives contract all right uh i think that, that that's i got, I got a question max max why did you think illumina back then why did you think illumina would be wouldn't wouldn't grow over the next decade i think it, so illumina is worth i don't know it's probably worth 40 or 50 billion dollars right now i haven't looked um, so even at the time it was worth $40 billion, the total global gene sequencing market was worth like $4 billion. So investors have always been pricing in that Illumina is just going to keep dominating. And I don't think they're looking over the horizon because, uh, at least on paper, and there's some things that still have to be worked out, but nanopore sequencing, it's not necessarily going to replace what Illumina does, but it's going to open it up to many, many more markets. The Illumina's market cap is about 48 billion right now, by the way. Ooh, I look man. forward to taking Max's money. This is going to be very. <laughs> it's going to be. A yeah, fun I race, think yeah. I'm not smart in this area, but I, I think Illumina's. I think Max. I think you're going to have to find Simon at a beach somewhere and deliver well, him two hundred dollars. Funny, we go back and forth on like, oh man, I think we're going to lose this bet, and each of us has said that. So like when when they uh, decided to acquire Grail, I was like, oh well, that could make them worth more than forty billion by in ten years, but. uh um, we'll see. I don't know. I, I still feel pretty good about my bet. Yeah, we got well, a long I, time. I, I will also be in the Amazon rainforest in 2028. So come find me, Max. <laughs> okay, um, it'll, it'll be a mall by then. <laughs> All right, before, before we get carried away, I'm going to move to real estate. That, that, uh -oh. that is our next uh, industry to talk about. And this one is going to be me, Dan, Steve, and Matt. Um, so I'll start with Steve first. What are some of the faults that you see with real estate as it currently is? And what problems do you think could be fixed? Oh man, where to begin? Um, anyone who's bought, a, bought or sold a house the traditional way kind of knows what's wrong with the process. I mean, I've, I mean, since my wife and I got married in 2006, you know, we we bought three houses, refinanced several times. And every time you don't, you don't really look forward to the, the whole adventure. I mean, real estate deals, they're often the largest transactions people make in their lifetimes. And, and because of the size of these transactions, buying and selling real estate usually ends up being this arduous, inconvenient, expensive months long process. And you have showings and negotiating back and forth with buyers and sellers, people backing out trying to get realtors to accept lower commissions. Sometimes you end up with a ream of paperwork at the end. Uh, deal might even fall through then and, you know, fees along the way. It's just this, I mean, all of that can be improved. And, and I feel like it's, it's not, not just ripe for disruption, but actively being disrupted uh, as it stands by some of the, the bigger players in, in the online, you know, digital real estate space. 
uh, is where we're sitting now. Yeah, I've never had to buy a home myself, but it sounds like there's just a lot of friction in the entire process and yeah. it's not just one fix. Right. Getting that and, right. Yeah. And it's, there's just so much, I mean, you know, like Zillow, for example, they want to be this sort of one-stop shop that handles the entire process, you know, and there's, there's a lot of places uh, that you can, you can improve the process and, and it's, it's getting better quickly. I mean, even now, I mean, I can compare the first house I bought in 2006 to the place we bought five years ago. And the process was so much easier, you know, just thanks to, you know, companies like DocuSign and, and uh, you know, just the platform, you know, being able to find what you're looking for uh, was really the first area that, that kind of offered that disruption. You didn't have to be shown around by an agent anymore. You know, so that was something that happened quickly. So. Um, now, a trend that has sort of caught on, and I think a lot of investors are really optimistic about, is iBuying. And there's, if I'm not mistaken, there's a few different models of how iBuying is done between Redfin and Zillow. Um, so first of all, what, what is iBuying? For anyone that doesn't know, how do those models differ? And then do you think that that is a sustainable business model? Because I've heard a lot of people say these margins are way too slim. It's not going to work in the long term. What do you see the outlook looking like? Yeah. So iBuying um, stands for instant buying for anybody who's not uh, you know, familiar. So, I mean, relatively speaking, it is, it's, it's instant, you know, compared to the traditional process. So, uh, I buyers like Redfin, Redfin or Zillow, uh, open door, for example, they'll step in, uh, they usually use the data they've collected. You know, sometimes they'll use artificial intelligence or machine learning models to learn about certain geographic areas or neighborhoods to be able to make uh, an instant offer on your house. So you can request this and, you know, it's mostly big metropolitan areas right now, but you can hop in if there's an iBuyer available in your region, you can say, give me a, give me an offer and they will give you an offer right there and tell you, we'll pay you this much for your house. And you can say yes or no. And, uh, you know, there's no showings, um, you know, depending on who's doing it, they might require a cursory inspection to basically make sure there aren't any major issues with the house. Uh, but they, they all generally offer, you know, some sort of service where they'll go in, uh, they'll let you, you know, they'll fix, make minor repairs. Uh, you don't have to deal with scheduling showings. You don't have to, you know, bicker back and forth about what you need to fix. They'll just take care of it all. Um, basically, you know, they know exactly what they can pay, what it's going to take to fix it and what they can turn around and sell the, the house for, uh, at a modest profit. Uh, but that's the problem, you know, you brought up, it's like how, um, the margins are slim, uh, and depending on who you are, you need to be careful about which houses you buy. So, uh, Zillow and Redfin are approaching the iBuying market, having really different backgrounds and primary sources of revenue. So Zillow, for example, historically generated most of its revenue from advertising brokers listings. So they have their, their premium agent thing. You advertise a listing, they make money that way. Redfin, on the other hand, focuses primarily on real estate services. And that's uh, mostly commissions uh, on home sales by Redfin agents. So, um, you know, Zillow is a lot bigger and they're working on scale uh, than compared to Redfin. Uh, so they're taking a more aggressive stance and they're, they are, they're losing money. So you look at Zillow, um, I think they said uh, last quarter that they lost around $1,500 per house. 
but they also said that was within their expected range as they're really early in the process. So as they scale, uh, they think they'll, they'll be able to actually generate meaningful profits, uh, 400 to 500 basis points uh, of adjusted EBITDA uh, margin uh, as they scale this process. But Redfin doesn't really have that luxury. So that's kind of, kind of where you run into. So they can, Zillow can, can make a lot more offers uh, than a smaller company like Redfin can. Do you think it'd be hard for like a startup to just go right into iBuying without sort of a backbone um, to keep cash flows maybe stable, like we've seen with Zillow, how they have sort of the ad yeah. business? Yeah, it's hugely capital intensive. So that's the that's the really big challenge is that you run into. You know, Zillow's going in, you know, they're buying a few hundred houses and selling. I think they sold a huge amount of them. It was like 1400 houses last quarter because they were basically scaling everything down as they kind of suspended things during the pandemic. But, um, you know, they, as they scale, you know, you got to have big lines of credit or a lot of cash to handle this. And it would be really hard, uh, for a small kind of up and coming player, uh, to do this. So I would almost consider a company like Redfin, you know, which is a four and a half billion dollar business could to be, you know, a tiny player in this niche. Hmm. Um, Matt, unless anyone has any other comments on that. Yeah, Dan, do you, I see, uh, do you have any? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in a little bit. Like, so they're also incredibly vulnerable to market conditions. So mm-hmm. they come in, they make a $300,000 offer for my house. If I sold it in the private market, maybe I'd get 310, but there'd be real estate commissions, there'd be other things there. So I do a little bit better. It's good for me. The market takes a tiny downturn and it's worth 285. And then they put a new kitchen into it, but nobody likes the new kitchen. Like it's a really risky business for really low margins. And they think they can get really smart and good at it. Mm, a lot of people have thought that with real estate over the years. I, I, I'm very skeptical of this space. So that, that's one thing that I was actually impressed with when the pandemic happened, how quickly they, sh- they wound it down. Like everybody just suspended activity right away. And they said, I think the average time it takes them because of how smart they are with the data they have it was like 30 days to, to sell a house on average is what they're running into. So they said, you know, pandemic hit, they stopped everything. Things came back. They ramped everything just as quickly. So uh, I think it was kind of an, an excellent exercise personally uh, in how fast they can pivot if need be, if the market takes a turn for the worst. So do they keep a lot of, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but do they keep a lot of houses on their books at any given time, or is their goal to turn that over as fast as they can? Because I'm imagining like an 08 type incident where they yeah. have a bunch of houses on their books and it destroys their balance sheet entirely. Yeah, that- so um, Zillow, I, I actually brought up the data from last quarter because I couldn't recall what it was, but I think they said last during in second in the second quarter, they sold 1,437 homes and only bought 86. And they ended with 440 homes on inventory. So basically they, they said, holy crap, this is, this is getting crazy. So they sold, you know, over 1400 homes and brought their inventory down by like 75% in a single quarter. So uh, that was what was really impressive to me. I'm like, Zillow basically saw the writing on the wall, said this could be bad, maybe. And uh, so, I mean, but still, you know, 400,000 on inventory isn't, isn't small, but. Except it isn't bad. And now they don't have any inventory. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, and there's no inventory to build up, so they've been ramping aggressively. So that's one of the things I'm going to be really curious about, and uh, and actually one of my topics for Seven Investing now tomorrow I want to talk about uh, is what we're going to expect uh, when it comes to Redfin and Zillow, who both report earnings early next month. So uh, this is it's going to be interesting because 
demand is bonkers and inventory is nothing. So. Okay, Matt, I want to bring you in here. Are there any companies that you like in the real estate space? It doesn't have to be a disruptor. I know we've talked a lot about Redfin, Zillow, Open Door, anything, any other businesses that you like? Well, if you exclude those three, I mean, the one thing that has never appealed to me and maybe probably one of the things I like best about being an investor in stocks is I'm really lazy. So it has never appealed to me at all to buy a rental property and have to worry about like somebody else's plumbing problems on a Saturday or anything like that. And while I don't currently own any REITs, uh, real estate uh, investment trusts, like I think there is, that's a great way if you want exposure to real estate in your portfolio and you're lazy like me and you don't have any, um, any type of handyman skills, it's a great way to get exposure to real estate without having to go get a rental property and have to deal with headaches that tenants bring and, and things like that. So, I mean, I, I, just, I think that's a fantastic way to, to get exposure. And for me, being lazy and not wanting to deal with headaches, um, it's a, you, know, you don't have to worry about evictions uh, or a tenant not paying on time or a leaky roof that you have to fix or just something bad happening to a single home. Uh, you know, where that can sink your investment, uh, like mildew in the walls or a sinkhole or just something specific to that house, a fire. I mean, there's just lots of things that can happen if you uh, go and buy a single rental home. And I think uh, REITs are just a fantastic way to get broad diversification in the real estate market. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like you're getting a lot of the upside of real estate while instantly diversifying away much of the risk of buying an actual property. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, I mean, there's so many specific REITs now too, like uh, with cell phone towers. So if you, you know, if you want like a more uh, stable, uh, you know, income paying uh, asset that uh, that pays dividends, uh, you know, but you, and you're, you're not sure on valuations, but you know that like 5G and internet of things and you want to get exposure to those trends, you can buy a, a cell phone tower REIT like American Tower or, or Crown Castle. Uh, you know, if you like data centers and you know, like, you know, well, the cloud's taking over, but you don't, you're not sure again on valuations or what specific company to, to, uh, to buy, to get exposure to that, you can buy data center REITs, you know, and they pay, they pay nice yields. Uh, so you can collect an income and you, you can play, it's a, it's a nice way to play certain sectors, I think, uh, without some of the risks that might come from some of the more high flying names. If you're, uh, if you're really bold, you could buy retail opportunity investments. I have a small stake in that. It's like shopping malls and stuff like that, like outdoor shopping centers. Well, yeah, that, that, and, been, and I'm not terrifying. bold. I'm not really bold, but <laughs> I think uh, I'm definitely not really bold like that, you know, but I think it's uh, REITs can be a fantastic way to get, just get exposure to, to real estate uh, without the headaches of being a landlord or, you know, and playing other sectors that if you don't know anything about could be like a, a safer way to play, but still gain exposure to the growth of the sector. For any okay. angry real estate investors, uh, you can find Matt at uh, Matt underscore Cochran seven <laughs> on Twitter and right. talk to him about how he just made you mad because he, he talked about investing in stocks versus real estate. That's all, all right. I have. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Airbnb is a topic I want to talk about. So Dan, this question's for you. Um, Airbnb's obviously not public yet. A lot of people sort of want them to be public. They have a pretty intriguing model. Um, do you think that they are disrupting the real estate sector or is it really just hotels and rentals? So they were, I don't know if they still are. Pre-pandemic, 
a lot of people here, I live in West Palm Beach or in Miami, bought houses. Probably 10% of my building is people that only live here two or three months a year and they Airbnb the rest of the year. That's not legal in many places, at least not legal in terms of the law, but my building doesn't allow that, but it still happens quite a bit. All of those people, when the pandemic hit, went, oh my God, we have these unrentable properties. What are we going to do? And a lot of them sold them because it's been a hot market to buy and sell. So I do think they were disrupting re real estate. Whereas, you know, I live here, I live here 12 months a year and I would have wanted to come in and buy and there's less inventory. Prices are artificially high. But I do think a lot of people who saw that as easy money are wary. There's a lot more cleaning expense now. You know, I'm someone, I, we have a second home and we let our friends and family stay there. Even with it being friends and family, there's still damage and people don't clean out the fridge and they don't put the trash out the right day. So like all of a sudden you have like Airbnb people coming, you need property managers, you need cleaners, you need, it's not the easy money people think it is. Now there are some markets, you know, you have a great Airbnb in Key West, well, you're probably cleaning up no matter what it is but you're also spending seven, $800,000 on a two bedroom condo. So yeah, there's been some disruption, but I think right now people are gonna be really, really wary about buying a house for Airbnb uh, you know, until the market, the travel market stabilizes. You know, right now, a place like Miami is still a good place to be because they can just long-term rent them. There's zero inventory for people who are, we're looking to rent out our place where I am right now and move someplace bigger and basically, if we don't look at something in the first day it's on the market, it's gone. So there is demand, but that like two night, three night rental where you could really make a much higher monthly rate if you had it rented out, you know, 70, 80% of the time, people are going to be a little scared of that would be my thought. Okay. So it sounds like the supply might be a little bit in danger. Is that what you're, is that what you're saying there? Yeah. Well, just, just if you're in a really hot area that people also live in, or especially here in Florida, where a lot of people have offices in New York that are closed. Like my brother is living in Miami. His office is in New York. It's closed. He doesn't need to live in New York. Why pay five grand a month for one bedroom where he could live, you know, on the beach in South beach for half that. A lot of people are doing that. That's going to end. So at some point that demand's going to go away. And in theory, the demand to like, Hey, I, I want to go to Miami for the weekend, get an Airbnb. But there's a lot of risk. People love that business. But I don't know if you guys you have used Airbnb a lot. I'd say it's about 70-30 that where you stay actually looks like the pictures, that it's a good experience. I'm not a big fan of when a brand doesn't control its own experience. So they can control the, the cash, the, you know, the, the how does everything behind the scenes go. They can't control the place I rented in Miami, that everything was beautiful, but all the furniture was so modern, there wasn't a comfortable place to sit in the whole house. So it was really like not a fun place to stay or that it was half a mile from the beach, but the half mile was a dangerous, not great neighborhood that you wouldn't want to walk through, you know, alone. So like, it's a business that I'm really, really wary of, although I am aggressively a customer. Right. I, I feel the same way. And I feel like Airbnb is always going to have that is customers don't exactly know what they're getting like they would with a Marriott or, you know, if you're going to stay somewhere and you're staying at a hotel, you know exactly what you're getting. Airbnb, I'm sure there's some horror stories out there or at worst, I, some, some uncomfortable I, I, couches. I've, I've had some. We, we yeah. rented a, a condo on, uh, on the beach in Hollywood, Florida, and the pictures were must have been taken in like 1982 because when we got there, the place was dilapidated. The, the air conditioning didn't work. It had those like portable air conditioners that sound like planes are landing. Like it, it was moldy, like it was awful. And that 
probably isn't Airbnb's fault, but they need to do a better job of, okay, this has been verified. We know this is this. A lot of times you can read through the comments and see this place, because I post a scathingly negative review of it, they immediately had a hundred new positive reviews. So they were clearly paying a team of people to just go and do reviews. They need to do the Amazon model where clearly the reviewer is someone who stayed there as opposed to just like their ability to pack it. It's not always a great experience. And if that was just me, it would have been fine, but I was with my wife and son. So we actually left early, even though we liked the, the location we were in. I've had a few bad ones uh, and just ones where you gotta be really careful. Like we rented a place that said it had three beds. I didn't notice that two of the beds were single beds, basically like army cots. Um, so you gotta be really careful. And yeah, if I book a night at the Westin, I kind of know what a Westin's gonna be like. Yeah, definitely. All right, wrap up question for Steve, Matt, and Dan. Between Zillow, Redfin, and Opendoor, who I believe just went public through a SPAC. Correct. What company is most exciting to you guys? Matt, want to go first? I'll go, yeah, I'll go first. Sure. Uh, like I'll take a pass on Open Door just because I I don't know too much about it to be honestly, and it's a company I'm I'm looking forward to to studying and getting to know more. I I really like Redfin. Uh, look, like everything Steve said, that's a problem with buying real estate. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the segment, I think it's very true. It's a purchase that most people only make three to four times in their lives, and it's very complex. And Steve might disagree with me, but I think Redfin is the best bet for being a one-stop shop in the future. And unlike Zillow, they don't have like a legacy business tied to the uh, traditional real estate market that I think, I just think it just makes me more weary of owning Zillow shares than Redfin. Uh, you know, I love Redfin's like, you know, it has an other revenue line where it includes like mortgage origination services and title settlement services and just, and, and things like that, um, that I think can really grow in the future. I love that they have their regular like brokerage service where you can like list a home for uh, a, a one and a half percent fee and a 1% if you buy and sell through Redfin, but they also have a concierge service. So if you don't want to fix up your home and, and get it ready for pictures and do all that uh, for, for extra money, like Redfin takes care of all of that for you. So I just really like what Redfin has to offer um, and I'm excited for its future and I'm a shareholder. Steve, any rebuttal? I, I would, I'd agree. I own both Zillow and Redfin actually. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a little more excited for Redfin in part because of uh, it's relatively small size. And uh, I love how it's sort of um, it's disrupting kind of the, the traditional commissions uh, structure, you know, so it comes, it'll come in and, you know, 1% commissions or whatever. And, instead of, you know, 3% and, and, uh, yeah. So yeah, I wish we had, you know, Redfin, they're not in my area. Uh, but I think Austin's bought, did you buy or sell a house on Redfin before? Yeah. Yeah. Use both traditional models, Zillow and then Redfin and Redfin was hands down far better experience. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. funny thing, I would not be terribly surprised if <laughs> Zillow attempted to acquire Redfin at one point. And, uh, you know, the, I just in this in the same way that it, it came and uh acquired you know the was it truly I think yeah um, so yeah I mean it's not afraid of big deals like that and uh so that wouldn't surprise me at all I I don't I know less about open door but I know it's an interesting app-based interface and it's sort of breakneck growth I think they went from like 700 million in revenue in 2017 to like 4.7 billion last year wow. uh so it's kind of wild uh and people speak highly of open door and i think their i buying business is on 
par or maybe slightly ahead of where Zillow is as far as scale goes. But um, so open door could be really, really interesting. And, you know, I might end up buying them too, but uh, at, at this point I'd say maybe Redfin, uh, Zillow and open door just because of my lack of uh, relative knowledge. Okay. Uh, Dan, any thoughts? So if things go really well for Redfin, they make one and a half percent. To me, it's the margins here that are a problem. Now you did say, Matt said something I like. The idea that they would do mortgages where you're essentially making a mortgage payment as your commission, that's a much better business. So if their business was, wasn't actually buying and selling houses, that part I don't like a lot. But if they made that so easy for you that you used all the rest of their services, you got your insurance through them, you got your mover through them, that's where there's some money to be made. And that's the business I like. People ask about Rocket Mortgage all the time. And Rocket Mortgage is matching you to mortgages. They're also selling you all those other things. It's not a company I I love, but they are kind of the dominant player in that space. And there's all this room to, if you trust them, sell you all sorts of other stuff. That's where I think Redfin could go. Eye-buying to me is insane. You're taking a, let's see, the average two bedroom here in West Palm Beach is probably 350. You're putting 350 grand out so you can make 352. Like it is a crazy idea. Again, unless it's all about controlling the process and getting all these ancillary commissions and there's tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, billions even to be made in all those commissions. Uh, you know, it's why there's so many websites out there that have like, you know, text that's trying to get you to click on their thing to get a mortgage through them. Directing those is big, big money. There's money there, but I don't know. I feel like there's better places to invest than any of these companies. The key, the key to iBuying is going to be how the margin of safety they buy the houses for. So like to test it out, like I actually, I tried to, I, I just wanted to see what offer they would get me uh, like a, a few months ago uh, on my house. And I just, I went through the process. I had to take some pictures. It's kind of a pain in the neck for, because it was just really a test. And I felt bad about it because I wasn't really doing it in good faith. Uh, however, like it, it was, the offer was insulting. And so like, as long as the offers remain that conservative, I'm not, too concerned about the eye buying stuff. It's when they get too aggressive with the eye buying that I would be really worried because there was a, there was like a huge margin of safety they had. Like if I had like gone through with it and like accepted their offer, I mean, that's like, it, it, it really was, it was, it was literally like, are you kidding me? Like there, there's no way I would take this offer. Yeah. So, I mean, as long as they get that margin of safety on each house by just low balling, uh, um, and, and these very conservative estimates, I, I'm not too worried about it. Now, you, you see the future though, like we're down the road, like uh, so they get more aggressive with that, you know, for growth or, or whatever. And how banks have done that in the past where banks can be very conservative for a long time with how they originate loans. And then they get more aggressive and, that, and reckless and that's what gets them in trouble down the road. So it would be something to very much keep an eye on uh, for sure. And it's definitely a danger but, but like the offer I got, like, I just thought like the, the, right now they're getting enough margin of safety on these houses where I'm not too concerned. Yeah. So one interesting point, a uh, little statistic, I, I believe if memory serves Zillow's acceptance rate for their offers is like two or 3%, like pretty low. Like people are like, yeah, sure. That'll work. Like if I don't have to deal with the rest of this, that's great. I don't know what it is for Redfin. Uh, but I want to say I read something about open door, like the conversion rate for open door leads is like 34%, which is just oh. absurd. 
Um, and I think it's like the, the ease of the system. So, uh, that's something to, to kind of keep in mind. This will be really interesting to see this kind of these eye buying wars accelerate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, um, I might give up a couple of grand to sell my house faster. I'm not giving up like 70 grand to, get right, right, to sell right. my house faster. And it, it was, it was more than 70 grand. Like I would have been giving up. Like, I mean, it, it was like, it was literally like insulting, like, you know, but, but it made me feel good as an investor. Like, okay, they're not getting crazy with this. Yeah, it, it's a tough business to be in. And even the, you know, some of their market is flipping. It's okay. This house needs work. We can do that work cheaply and more efficiently because we have contractor teams in those markets. But even that, you're competing against all of these professional contractors who are also looking for those houses and deals. It's a, it's a really tough market. Doesn't, doesn't mean they can't make it work. I just sort of feel like there's companies that have an easier path. Yeah, and it sounds like the customers that are selling their houses for those insultingly low prices are ones that are in like a, just a dire need to get rid of it. Because I can't imagine that people that are doing it just to see what the Redfin offer is like just for fun are like, yeah, I'll sell my house for 20% less than it's worth. Um, but anyway, we're going to get to the wrap-up question. And we always have the same wrap-up question here. And it's, what is one piece of advice you have for any investors? Instead of going all the way around, we're just going to do one as seven investing as a whole. So what is one piece of advice that seven investing has for investors? Yeah, Ryan, I'll take this one and speak on behalf of the team that um, our, our our saying that we would that we would recommend for investors is to think longer term. This is just directly related with our fourth seven investing principle, which is that time is on your side. There are so many short term traders chasing profits on whether it's Bitcoin or COVID vaccines or pot stocks or whatever else it is, and you're up against algorithms that are just in and out of trade so quickly. And a lot of people think that's what the stock market is, but it's not. At least long-term investing has given you a much better chance of success. And, you know, Warren Buffett started investing when he was 10 years old. He's now 90 years old. He's got 80 years of investing experience because he's been able to compound and look at the long-term always. He reads multiple newspapers every single morning. Um, that works. And just when you hear about the things that we talked about on this call, you know, whether it's living technologies or genomic sequencing or the real estate market or cell towers or connected fitness. I mean, these are long-term trends. These are not things that are coming in and out in a year or two years. These are going to be in place for decades. And it takes time for companies to enact their strategies and for management to really execute. And so we really believe that the way to make money in the stock market is to embrace that compounding nature that it has and invest longer term. Okay. Love that answer. Um, thank yeah. you guys all for coming and joining us on the show. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having us. You had a great time. All right. Welcome back in. Thanks again to seven investing the whole team for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Next we have our hot water for the week. How many do you have? I have two. But okay. they're good. I think they're they're very good. I have three. I think okay, they're go all ahead. right. Go ahead. Okay, my first one is AMC is in hot water. Uh, this one's real. This week in a filing with the SEC, they cited their concerns of staying alive if they don't find new sources of liquidity. Ooh. Um, those, so, bond, those bonds I talked about might be in trouble. So for reference, in 2018, AMC did $12 billion in sales roughly. And in 2019, they did 11 billion in sales. And so far in 2020, they've done less than two. So yeah, they are in trouble. I believe 
they are 80 in terms of volume of people coming in and out i believe it's 85 percent off the highs um they already had five billion in debt before the crisis i doubt anyone wants to lend to them right now i can't imagine that bailing them out makes a whole lot of sense because i mean you're bailing out a business that was slowly eroding anyways so you're basically catching a falling knife if you're government and also like it's not a necessity yeah. to go to theaters, so I don't think they would bail them out. Um, well, let me let me paint you a little devil's advocate scenario for the bondholders. Bondholders okay. don't uh, they don't if someone files bankruptcy, it doesn't mean the bondholders don't get made whole, and you might get converted into equity during the new um, when they come out of bankruptcy. And then wouldn't you think that those assets are probably going to get bought up by one of the streaming services or Disney or any of the other big companies? There's a chance of that, right? What there assets? could be some. Their assets are the, the real theater, estate. The theaters. Who's going to buy it? Netflix, Amazon. I was going to say, why doesn't Netflix just outright bid $300 million? I mean, their market cap is $350 million roughly right now. Why doesn't yeah. Netflix just give them a $300 million bid and say, we'll buy you? Yeah, I mean, they could just wait for him to go bankrupt and then try to buy him um, out of that. But What's the point of Netflix having all that real estate? I mean, I don't know. It's just another value add to the subscription. Yeah, potentially. People like to go to the movie theaters. I, I love the movie theaters, and I'd hate a no AMC world. But at the same time, if I'm a business, I don't know. Bailing them out makes a whole lot of sense. Plus, you get $5 billion in debt on your balance sheet. That's not helpful either. Yeah, I mean, Netflix probably doesn't have the balance sheet to do it with all that debt. But coming out of bankruptcy, if the bondholders, so maybe this is when, if the bondholders uh, don't get made whole and everything kind of gets wiped out. Um, And I'm saying this as someone that doesn't know much about bonds. So if I'm wrong, please just go, you know, just let it go. But the, yeah, the, yeah, I mean, that could be nice for Netflix if they get some of those assets without taking on the debt. But then a bigger company, Amazon could easily do that um, and add it to the Prime subscription for sure. Um, although I don't think a lot of people would like that. No. Um, they all, I think the sentiment would be negative, like, okay, Amazon's eating everything, but then they'd be like, oh, I mean, it's a good value proposition. Yeah. All right. Um, my next hot water is SPAC negativity because I think oh. it's over. Yeah. So according to a New York Post article, Bill Ackman wanted to take Bloomberg public via SPAC. Um, apparently, Mike Bloomberg would have been able to retain his ownership, but uh, – regardless bloomberg dismissed the rumors said it wasn't true and i'm not sure it really makes sense for big companies to go public via spac it's kind of like a hack for smaller companies because they don't have to pay all the fees of like an ipo but bloomberg can definitely do that and retain their ownership yeah there's no need for them to go public um ackman just wants a piece of that this guy's a high margin business right there would you want to see bloomberg in the public markets apparently they did More than $10 billion in revenue last year. Yeah, it seems like a really solid business. They're, they have, I mean, they the have Bloomberg really terminals. expensive. Yeah, they have, <laughs> the terminals cost a ton to Apparently use. people use them. People use them, and the, cli- the clients they have can spend to use them. So, I mean, I don't know. It seems like it can't cost that much to make. The margins have to be upwards of 60%. Operating margins probably 65% unless they're yeah. spending a lot of money on um, the news stuff or yeah. any of the other things, and that's kind of subsidizing it. But 
I don't know. Seems like a fantastic business, and I don't think Mike Bloomberg wants to uh, get down to the public and be like, "Yeah, this is such a great business. Keep it on the low." You know, they'll keep making money by themselves as their LP or whatever they call it. Yeah, uh, the pizza industry is in hot water this week. Well-known ex Papa John CEO Papa, Papa John Schnatter himself yeah. wrote a short report on the Papa John's company. On Seeking Alpha. On Seeking Alpha. That so was the cherry. Seek, he's a Seeking Alpha contributor. Yeah, that was the cherry on top that he's on Seeking Alpha. Nothing wrong with Seeking Alpha, but a lot of it's like, and we know people that write on there, uh, a lot of it's like anonymous um, bloggers, a good way to make money or just get your word out there. His thesis was basically that their current success, like their short-term success, is all because people like pizza delivery during COVID. And, so cha- and he, Shaq. And he was basically saying, like, no, that doesn't really count. Their success doesn't count because it's temporary. And then he went ahead and said, also, the pizza quality is worse since I left. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, well, he tried 40 pizzas, right? That's I, that's right. He did 40 pizzas in 30 days. I love how – yeah, and first of all, that whole spiel where he's like, I can eat 40 pizzas in 30 days, that doesn't make me – want you as my ceo any more or less well like, in december he said a day of reckoning was coming and i guess COVID hit so he was kind of right for but, everyone but it helped their business yeah it's obviously nonsense he's just jealous i mean they got Shaq in there doing a whole marketing type deal and shaq's been really strong with all those things so when do you think papa john's will launch his fund if he's his a new seeking alpha contributor yeah he'll last longer than um i don't want to say he any seems bad clinically hedgers. insane yeah, he is. I mean, if you name a company after yourself, it's a it's a red flag. Just I mean, oh, Bloomberg, I guess, but uh, yeah. All right. Um, yeah. What do you have? Hot water. Okay, our guy. This is coming up. I guess a lot of 2019 things coming up. Uh, Firefest Billy McFarland oh, has been him. placed in solitary confinement. You want to guess why? Why he launched his own podcast called Dumpster Fire. And he was recording from prison. Hey, you know what? This whole new media operations from prison is kind of yeah. nice. Him, Shkreli, we Does may have Shkreli to invest. Does have a Substack or is it just a typical blog? It's just a newsletter. It's free. Look at um, this. He can't charge for it. People that have been exiled by society, Papa John himself, uh, yeah. Billy McFarlane, Martin Shkreli, these guys are now <laughs> contributors. Yeah. They're a part of the media empire. They are. I would love to see um, – I would listen to the Billy McFarland Prison podcast if it was at least yeah. if it was short enough. Um, but right now he is in twenty three hour a day solitary for the next ninety days. So tough look for old Billy. Yeah, that's um, tough. But you know he deserves it. So. Okay. Uh, next, what else do you have? Next one. Okay, Samsung CEO dead really? at age seventy eight. But the rumor is that he was actually dead seven years ago. So Samsung owns this hospital in Korea, right? And he has been technically in um, intensive care above and like the penthouse floor of this hospital. No one's been able to see him. And the reason people think they actually didn't announce his death until now is because the tax laws in Korea say that if you have, you know, the estate stuff or whatever, the succession things, you know how there's all those fees with that. Yeah. You still have to pay the taxes, even if it's in um, stocks or equities. So they would have gotten a fine on it, or sorry, uh, they would have had to pay taxes even if it didn't get liquidated. So oh. that, that's just a tough move. And people say, like, there's this giant river that it's been, um, the death has actually been hidden for seven years. Fascinating conspiracy theory, and it's one that's actually slightly believable. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Sounds, that's, that's pretty interesting. What was, uh, do, do you have any other ones, or 
That was my two. There was that one about uh, what was that? That new EV company? Oh, Helion. Yeah, that's a joke too. What is it? Seven thousand price to sales? Yeah, price to sales seven thousand trailing. Uh, twenty twenty two. It's more like forty, which is reasonable for an automotive company, right? But, but oh, God. All right. Whatever. It's all a joke. It's it's just it's all. Fuck, a joke. fuck Mary Kill. The theme this week is reasonable spacs. If they were to happen, I know two of them have happened, but speculative the hasn't. Uh, Bloomberg, which won't happen, but whatever. Open Door and DraftKings. Ooh, kill Open Door. Terrible margins. Mary Bloomberg, fantastic margins. I'm guessing they have Facebook like and Google like margins, mm. um, or Adobe or Microsoft, whatever. You know, something like that. I mean, yeah. the subscription so much, and a lot of it's already fixed input and cost. I mean, it's it's amazing. They just give out that free keyboard. It, it's it's printing money, and then uh, I'll fuck DraftKings because seems exciting. Now, I wouldn't probably want to invest. Um, seems low margin. It's a gamble. But, <laughs> yeah, literally, good, literally a gamble. That's a good uh, that's a good pun there. What do you think? Yeah, Bloomberg seems like the safest company out of all those. Um, so Mary, and then DraftKings. It's trendy right now. Sports betting yeah. in general is just trendy. So um, yeah, I probably bang them. Might have the, to kill but yeah, but the numbers on the DraftKings is just. A lot of those gambling numbers, those margin numbers, the unit economics, they seem poor. Um, I know it's exciting. I know there's going to be a lot of dollars flowing in, but it's just tough to see how the businesses can succeed or or be that large. Like uh, we discussed on the interview, the economics on aggressive eye-buying is a lot worse. And it's risky. Yeah. Um, Okay. Anecdotal evidence. uh, What do you have? Okay. Well, Chipotle had earnings last week. And every time I get it, I always think we've missed the boat. And I just, it's this probably the one that I think about each week. Like it was right there. A lot of people could have seen it. This um, is my anecdotal evidence. Too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, First it's tough. All, like we, we knew that they were going to win in digital, but the valuation was just, it's just high. I mean, it's still high. The food is remarkable. <sighs> I the, wouldn't call it remarkable, but it's, it's great food. Okay. It's not great food. It's, it's probably the best fast casual. Bucks. It's the best fast casual food out there. I'll give them that. It's what about not Panera? Panera's up, Panera's up there. Yeah, those two are probably the best fast casual out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. I get I get bullish every time I go and I use the app or whatever. Yeah, just it's solid. Anyway, um, but everyone saw it. I don't know. Okay, my anecdotal. I don't know if you have any more, but that's it. I've been listening to the annual meetings. We kind of discussed this earlier from uh, Berkshire and they go all the way back to like 1994 and maybe 93, but they're on Apple podcasts. Sorry, Spotify. Um, yeah, come on, Spotify. Get on that Buffett at one point and people don't talk about this side of Buffett, but he said one of the best things about being rich is being able to hate more effectively. He's, he's like, (laughs) when you're rich, you can hire lawyers and accountants and rough them up financially and then if you're poor, he was like, all you can really do is maybe snub them from some turkey at Thanksgiving. Spit in their sandwich. Yeah, it's like people don't talk about the killer Buffett, but I feel like that killer sort of instinct or that sort of mean side is what has made him so successful. Well, now he's like in the lore of investing itself. So over the last 20 years, he's kind of just been that that figure that we think about, but back before the turn of the 21st century, he had to get where he was, and he didn't do it by being a nice guy. Um, yeah. As a businessman, he just did whatever um, whatever you think about how a businessman should operate. He did it in the best ways to return value to his shareholders. That's yeah. That's what he did. Oh, and then over the long term, you know. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. Follow us on Twitter. It's our promo code if you're going to sign up for 7investing is CCM. And we'll have a link in the show notes if you yeah. want to use that. We'll do that as well. Um, yeah. Follow us on Twitter. You can email us chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.